faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. People believe tall buildings at a single bound. The instant of ship town is now the man of steel. Superman! Welcome to Superman Forever Radio, episode 68. I am your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder, and this time is yet another installment of our complete coverage of Birthright. But before jumping into that, in a very awesome episode of Superman the Animated Series, I want to talk about what Superman's 75th anniversary means. Because the new Man of Steel trailer brought out a lot of strong opinions. In hardcore fans, non-fans alike, positive and negative. The sentiment is that I am hearing a lot that with the new 52, that this new look, the tone and, and so on and so forth of the movie will kill Superman. I'm sorry, but 75 years will prove that isn't true. Superman has survived the Great Depression, Pearl Harbor, World War II, Frederick Wortham, Silver Age silliness, 80s grittiness, 90s excess, long hair, electric powers, ant heads, lion heads, death re reboots, news anchor Clark Kent's, the first computer, the moon landing, the rise of the Marvel Age, the Kennedy assassination, Joe Kelly, the Batman craze of the 60s, the Batman craze of the early 90s, Superman 4, the quest for peace, Lois and Clark, a porn parody, lawsuits, copyright issues, generations of fans, more generations of fans, generations of detractors, critics, multiple reboots, red briefs, armored costumes, total justice, 13 presidential administrations, Furbies, Beanie Babies, Cabbage Patch Kids, Tickle Me Elmos, Pokemon, Power Rangers, Tim Burton, and the fall of the Berlin Wall. Triangle numbering, renumbering, retitled books, and finally a bevy of podcasters sharing his adventures. He, he's, he's outlived many, many people, and he's going to outlive us. A new movie isn't going to destroy the character, it isn't going to ruin him, because through every reboot and every new creative team, the innate goodness at the core of the character always shines through. Whether he has the red briefs or he doesn't, or even, you know, wears a costume in the case of Smallville, he's still standing. He's never been out of publication, nor has he really been out of television or movies for very long or other media. And if you think the current tone is not your speed, it's lame, wait around. Because the true Superman always comes back, even if it is old-fashioned, because sometimes... The world just needs some old-fashioned. You know, and for a simple comic book hero, that's something amazing. I mean, this is a character that was haphazardly thrown into a new medium that was meant to be disposable. And he's become such an institution that he's still here 75 years later, and that means occasionally changing the backdrop or the tone, but he is always Superman. He always does what's right because it's what's right, otherwise, well, it's not Superman. And when he isn't, that's where you and I come in to keep the stewards of the kingdom on track. We're here to tell them, hey, that's wrong. The Superman starts going out, you know, with a thirst for vengeance. We gotta rein that in, kids, and the best way to vote is with your wallet. So if the tone of, of the Man of Steel or of the New 52 doesn't strike you as, as your thing, don't buy it. I respect that. I understand that, but it's not gonna kill the character. There's no need to panic. 75 years of Superman means that we are just beginning. Superman is years and years ahead of him, and it means that for the next 75 years, bold new stories, new movies, television shows, and more. As the Carpenters once sang, we've only just begun. And just to think uh, from a personal perspective, Superman was around for 39 years before I was even conceived, which means he has literally been a part of my life in some capacity since I was born. Once again, something that was printed on cheap paper when my grandparents are being born are a big part of me. And I sure see a lot of people in genera generations subsequent to mine wearing his symbol. What does that tell you? To counter Clark's thoughts in the trailer of his fears of the world rejecting him because we aren't ready, clearly, clearly we are ready for a hero and we will always need those. Just a bit of what I see when I think about the trailer and the 75th anniversary. But uh, enough random thoughts. We still have Birthright to cover and a stellar episode of Superman the Animated Series. But before, before we get to all of that, an email from Mr. Sean Engel, he of Just One of the Guys podcast. 
I was recently privileged to guest star on the show on episode 61, where Superman makes a guest appearance. Uh, check out that episode, and you know what? Check out the show as a whole, because Sean promotes a pair of Green Lanterns that are solid, a little bit off the beaten track. Uh, me, I'm a personally a huge Kyle Rayner fan. He's quote-unquote my Green Lantern. Uh, but you can currently find the show at justoneoftheguys.libsyn.com. Libsyn is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. But Sean's email is entitled Superman Forever Radio, Episode 67, Birthright, Part 2. And Sean writes, Hey David, I'm just writing in again to tell you I'm really enjoying the show, especially your coverage of Birthright. In fact, your coverage has made me do something that I rarely do. Hunt down the back issues so I can actually read the comics you are covering. My LCS had issues 1, 3, 4, and a few more in their back issue selection, but I'm going to wait for free comic book day so I can pick them all up at a discounted rate as my LCS and other comic shops around Oklahoma City are going to be having 50% off sales. Getting great comics is awesome, but getting, the, getting them cheap is much better. Amen. Um, I also wanted to comment on the new Man of Steel trailer that you played the audio from at the beginning of the show. I'm certain that many a Superman fan felt disappointed with the last installment of The Last Son of Krypton's adventure on the big screen, and I count myself as one of them. Again, not that it was a bad movie, just not the kind of movie fans, including myself, were expecting. With this new Man of Steel movie being helmed by Zack Snyder, produced by Christopher Nolan, and written by David Goyer and Nolan, I had a lot of doubts that this film could make me forget about Superman Returns. Snyder does a good job adapting comics when he can just take panels from the book and put them into film, Watchmen and 300, but misses the mark when he's left to his own devices, Dawn of the Dead and Sucker Punch. Nolan can do some interesting movies, Memento and The Prestige, but his dark gritty realism for this, his comic book movies, The Dark Knight Trilogy, is not suited for a Superman tale. And Goyer is closely associated with Nolan in the Dark Knight movies, plus he has penned the controversial story The Incident in Action Comics 900, where Superman renounced his U.S. citizenship. My quick commentary on that, Superman is a citizen of the world, but American resident, and this move was out of character in my opinion. But with all of these things that could go against the movie, I am really jazzed about it after this trailer, mostly due to the performances of Kevin Costner as Jonathan Kent, Russell Crowe as Jor-El, and Henry Cavill as Superman. The interrogation slash interview with Lois Lane was exactly how I picture Superman both, both visually and orally. That's orally, folks. A-U-R. Heathens. Um, there are some really big summer movies this year, and I am definitely going to see, and on the strength of this trailer, Man of Steel has moved up to being one of the must-sees. Anyhow, loving the coverage of Birthright, and I can't wait for the next episode. Take care, Sean Angle. The irony is, you can't wait for the next episode, and your email is on it. It's a circle of life. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> uh, I, I'm I'm almost sorry to say that you know to hear that I kind of hit your wallet, Sean. But really, the book is worthwhile, and I, I I'm good on I'm good with you waiting to get a good deal. I'm a big fan of a good deal. Um, I would also maybe push you towards checking out the collection. There's a hardcover and a paperback. It reads really seamlessly in that version, um, which doesn't necessarily match up well with the way I'm covering it. But as far as a reading experience, I think that's the easiest way to experience it. And the trailer. I've commented on that a little bit, but yes, the movie may be... It may completely miss the mark. I may walk out of the theater cursing Zack Snyder. That may happen. But from what I've seen and what I've heard, he's taking this middle path from this stylized direction we saw in 300 and Sucker Punch and the droll plane style we saw in Dawn of the Dead. Now, I like Dawn of the Dead, but visually... Most of it was a snooze fest if there weren't, you know, car wrecks happening. It, was, it happened in a mall, is all I'm saying. Uh, Romero could make that work. So far, I, I'm what I've seen, it's been really gorgeous work. And I know we have Nolan producing. I know this, but don't forget there's a huge studio sitting on both of them that kind of saw Superman Returns as a failure, and they're not really ready to risk that. I mean, Nolan may have made... Warner Brothers just a truckload of cash. He may have certain creative freedoms, but they can still pull the leash when they need to. And yes, Goyer wrote the infamous Action 900 story. However, there was no risk to that story. There was nothing at stake. It was a backup. It was tucked away and didn't have millions upon millions of dollars at stake. You know, a controversial backup story, that'll sell a comic book. But the same thing can sink movies. 
And let's not forget the angry letters sent to Warner Brothers over Lois and Clark doing the deed in Superman 2. Warner Brothers is going to play this very, very carefully. Nolan or no Nolan. Uh, right now, kind of like you, all I can go on are these trailers. But you nailed it. Kevin Costner. Costner. Of all people, the guy that can phone in a performance. Uh, he totally pulled at my heartstrings. And Cavill. Oh man, without, without aping Christopher Reeve. He nailed the mannerisms and the look. So I agree with you, yeah, he's exactly, I mean, when he says it's not an S, I see this, hum there's a lot playing, there's humility, there's a little bit of strength, I really dig it. I'm, I'm really highly encouraged about the movie, I'm very excited, but when the final, I'm not going to have a final word until I see the movie twice. Once to get the fanboy reaction over with, and another to kind of try to look at it through critical eyes, and my plan is to get both reactions on this very show right afterwards. Uh, but I highly appreciate your email, Sean. I really do. I appreciate the invitation to be on Just One of the Guys, because I had an absolute blast. And so, everybody, Just One of the Guys podcast. It's a Guy Gardner, Kyle Rayner podcast. And uh, go check it out now. Well, don't check it out now. Finish listening to this. Uh, in between episodes of Superman Forever, then, then go check it out. I mean, sorry, Sean, but fair is fair. And finally, after I recorded and edited and posted last week's episode, I realized in my in my reverie over the trailer... I completely forgot to talk about Lionel Francis Yu, the artist on Birthright. I was going to give you a little background on him. Uh, Yu actually kind of came into the industry by way of winning Wizard Magazine's Drawing Board Contest, which caught the attention of Image Comics' Wills Portacio, which I may be saying that wrong, I fully admit. But working with Portacio just didn't quite go through, primarily because if I remember correctly, Portacio couldn't get back into the States. Um, however, Protasio forwarded you over to Marvel, and there you worked on Wolverine from 1997 to 1999 with a bunch of different writers, which I can't imagine a really a better training ground. You've got different types of scripts, different tones, so he actually kind of earned his keep, and you had a short run on the Objectiveless X-Men book as well. In 2002, you came over to DC when he worked on a miniseries called High Roads with Scott Lobdell. And that led to his gig on Birthright. Most recently, um, you could you could have seen his art in Secret Invasion, and also you reteamed with Mark Wade on the current run of Indestructible Hulk, which has been excellent, just excellent. I know this isn't my Hulk podcast, but do yourself a favor, check out Indestructible Hulk. I think the fifth issue, yes, fifth issue just dropped as I'm recording this. Uh, but that's what I left out last week. Uh, so many many apologies. I know I'm kind of running over on my preamble. So I'm ready to jump into the books. Um, to get the formalities out of the way, make this move a little bit smoother, we're going to be looking at Birthright issues 7, 8, and 9 this week, 10, 11, and 12 next week. Uh, these three issues this week, they bore the cover dates of April through June of 2004. Release dates in order were February 4th, March 3rd, and April 7th of 2004. And the creative team throughout remains Mark Wade as writer, Lionel Francis Yu as penciler, Gary Allen Guilin as inker, Richard Starkings as letterer, Dave McCaig as colorist, and that brings us up to Birthright, number seven. Time passes, and Clark is virtually ignored at the Daily Planet. He's almost like a ghost. Lois and Jimmy go to a planet get-together at a bar, a gathering that was relocated specifically to make sure that Clark Kent couldn't attend. The staff talks about how Kent and how quiet and creepy he is as Clark listens in from another restaurant, using his superhero. But there is an explosion at a nearby bridge which sends Clark into action as Superman, but when he gets there he finds himself suddenly weakened. Thanks to some more well-placed explosions and Superman's fragile state, it appears to onlookers that he is the one destroying the bridge. Watched by Luthor via webcam, Superman narrowly saves the bystanders before he falls into the bay below, weak and out of energy. The next day, the Daily Planet headline shows Superman and the bridge with the words Demolition Man. In Smallville, Martha and Clark correctly deduce that Luthor was behind the fiasco at the bridge, mainly because the last time that Clark felt weak and sick, Luthor was present here in Smallville. But there are no traces of Luthor ever living in Smallville, and most people change the subject when asked about his youth. However, through the magic of flashbacks, we see that Lex did live in Smallville as a slightly older ninth grade student, well, mainly because he used his placement exam to design a supercomputer. 
Clark brings Lex home for dinner, albeit slightly late because, well, they had detention. It seems that they got in trouble because Lex was finishing the school's furnace by inventing a clean burning heat pump. Lex is a bit awkward and aloof, you know, because of the super genius stuff. And when Lex decides to upgrade the milking machine in the barn, his souped-up version scares the cows and Pa gets upset, sending Lex running off. Clark catches up with him and persuades him to come back, and Clark shows Lex his telescope, and the two bond over astronomy. The two talk more, with Lex admitting that he feels out of place because of his off-the-charts intellect, and by out of place he means here on Earth. Lex assumes that Clark doesn't understand, and we leave the flashback to return to present day, where Clark mentions a meteorite, and that he assumed it had burned up in a fire. But what if it didn't? No, we don't know what that fire is yet. Moving from that little morsel to the Luthor of today, we find him at a remote lab performing an experiment with green kryptonite, the fragment that we had last issue. Using its energies, Lex opens a portal, a portal identified as a phantom zone, and we wrap with Lex looking at Kryptonians in full regalia within the portal itself. And this is where the notes begin, with a bit of a downer opening, to be honest. Clark is ex he's essentially non-existent at the Daily Planet to the point that the maintenance staff turn off the lights on him as he's still working. It's kind of a crappy environment, and it certainly doesn't endear the staff to the reader, but we know Clark is putting on a show. And that doesn't diminish our pity for him, though. Really, the entire Daily Planet staff seem like a bunch of jerks. Yeah, Clark Kent is quiet. Maybe a little creepy, but nobody seems to try and get to know him or his point of view. It really... It really boils my blood that they move the gathering to another restaurant. Because it feels like a bunch of high school bullies, and these are adults. They are professionals. They're not varsity jocks, so maybe I expect a little bit more out of them, especially Lois Lane, who actually does stick up a little bit for Clark, but still bothers me. Uh, but with that, I have to wonder, as Clark is listening in and experiencing all of this, how is he supposed to feel? Not so much what does he feel, how is, how, wh what is he supposed to feel? Because after all, doesn't this mean the disguise is working? He's protecting his secret identity and apparently doing a bang-up job of it too. But at what cost? I mean, he's sacrificing any kind of, of real social life, human contact, or anything like that to do his job as Superman, and spending his time between these two versions of himself that aren't the real Clark. That's the big key. He's okay with it. It takes its emotional toll, but he's okay with it. He understands it. He accepts it. That is what separates Superman from Spider-Man. He knows the rules of the game. He knows how it works. Not trashing Spider-Man, folks. Just saying. He invented the secret identity game. Um, all superpowered beings, any that was his his contribution, among others. And he's strong enough in character and devout enough in his mission to take it. But as readers, we feel the sting far more than he does. Sadly because, well, let's be honest, as comic book fans, a lot of us can relate to that. But Clark shakes off any blues when he hears the explosion at the bridge, and he rushes out to do his job. And though he's weakened to the point of crawling, he still strives to save people. That's what makes him Superman. And thankfully at the Daily Planet, he, the, the paper remains objective enough to make the headline Demolition Man a question, not a statement. They even wonder if he was set up. They, they are being fair and balanced, which is something rare to see in the news. And then we jump to Smallville, and I totally get why. He's been punched in both his Clark Kent and Superman identities. He needs to regroup in a place of safety. We have Martha and Jonathan acting as sounding boards, which is more down-to-earth than retreating to a fortress of solitude and hanging out with a hologram. Not that I don't like that, but I see why we're here. And we learn that this wasn't Clark's first run-in with Kryptonite, but we won't see his first experience until next issue, so, let that mystery sit on the table there for a few minutes. And yes, we get another perspective on Lex Luthor, and as I said, I don't necessarily want to empathize with him, and yet I find myself doing just that. In reality, Mark Wade has made Lex Superman's mirror opposite in a lot of ways. He's also alienated. He appears strange when he uses his natural gifts. And this young version is really introverted and shy, because every time he reaches out, you know, he gets his hand smacked. And no, I can't understand the level of intelligence he's using. 
but I see very clearly why Clark would want to have a friend like young Lex. Not only is it showing Clark's compassion, but also Clark's need to have a sort of equal. And it really adds a bit of backbone to the friendship and to, well, what happens later. Their friendship is more grounded, and it's more logical than what was presented on the TV show Smallville. Because that friendship came from a place of, uh, well, partially pity on Lex's part for, you know, hitting Clark with his car, and also from a bit of gratitude since Clark then saved his life. They are outcasts, and Clark sees the good side of Lex that was there. And can I also point out that when Clark makes his alter ego, when he makes the Daily Planet version of, of Clark Kent, it does have a bit of young Lex in it. Because both are shy, both are ignored, or make their peers uneasy, and both do their best to stay out of the way until their gifts are needed, and when they use them, they seem to be rejected. I don't think it's a coincidence. I don't. And I, it's not that Clark is emulating Lex, but I think there was just a bit of his demeanor softened up a bit that went into that persona. I like what's being set up here. And this is only the beginning. Just wait till you see what happens in our next issue. But before we jump full into the next issue, I have a few odd and end type notes. Uh, they don't necessarily fit into the full thought process. On page four, in the sad scene where Clark is overhearing the conversation at the restaurant, he sits at a large table with many empty used plates. Now, what kind of restaurant is this? Or did I just read this wrong and the staff was out to dinner and then they made up an excuse to ditch Clark and went to the bar across the street if that's the case, it enrages me even more, so I'm not going to I'm not going to dive into that too deeply. On page five, when Clark rushes off to save the bridge, he makes sure the bill gets paid. That makes me smile. Uh, I am relieved that on page seven there are people who do recognize that Superman is a hero. But when the subsequent explosions happen, we find out that they are, well, apparently fair weather fans. And as I look at the bridge support that Superman is holding up on page 8, I notice that it looks like a bird. It looks like an eagle, to be to be more exact. A little bit... Uh, it looks a little bit Nazi regalia, but I don't think that's the intent at all. Uh, but it does bring a whole new meaning to look up in the sky, it's a bird. Because the thing is going to fall down and crush you. And then, as we see Luthor's camera, I'm kind of filled with questions. Because it's a small sliver of kryptonite, but it's having this huge effect. So does kryptonite's effects have to be proportionate to the size of the kryptonite? And what is the proximity of the kryptonite in this universe? Because it seems to be mounted from a fairly high vantage point. Or either that or there are multiple cameras. If there are multiple cameras, that's not really, that's not really conveyed very well. But we do know we're in an extremely different world post-Superman because the government is adding funds for an alien investigation. I want you to imagine that, being able to today to pick up the newspaper and the government is adding funds for an alien investigation. And here I just thought they studied solar-powered flashlights. One thing that I found unnecessary was when we get a tease of Clark's exposure. It, it didn't drag me in and be like, oh, what happened here? It more annoyed me, like, oh, can we see more? Why not just hold it till next issue? Or tell that part of the story here and now? We're clearly telling things slightly out of order, so it wouldn't be out of place. Although we did sail past Clark growing up in Smallville, only to jump back to that time period to tell a story about Lex's formative years. And I wonder if Wade thought that Clark's childhood was a tale already told, especially with Smallville still in its second or third season at this point. And an odd note, the cows getting spooked on pages 14 and 15 are perhaps the scariest I, I've ever the scariest moo cows I've ever seen. They're milk cows, and they are terrifying. And then finally, I really like the character beat on page 17, where Lex notices an astronomy book on Clark's shelf and decides to challenge him. This is the moment that Clark proves to be more than what Lex expected, and really, that's what won Lex over on Clark. It's such a precise beat with only a look and a shot of the book. And then we have Lex opening the Phantom Zone at the end of the issue, and that leads us directly into something horrific in our next issue with Birthright number 8. Birthright number 8 opens with Clark and Jonathan visiting the site where the Luther House once stood, a spot that overlooks all of Smallville. Clark mentions that the bulldozers and landscapers had the place gone practically the next day after the fire, and he had assumed 
that the meteor Lex had was buried there along with Clark's telescope, which he could see with his X-ray vision. But not a trace of it remains in the buried junk. This takes us back to another flashback, wherein Lex humiliates a teacher who is sharing Arthur Conan Doyle with some of Luthor's own deductive reasoning, which he uses to imply that the female teacher had relations with the gym coach. This gets Luthor detention, and when Clark goes to stick up for him, he gets stuck with detention as well. Lex's genius leads him to civics, where he discovers a better way to run the city, but is dismissed by Smallville's mayor. When Lex submitted designs to upgrade the Smallville High School Stadium, Lex was once again dismissed, which was a bad idea, because Lex went to help a rival football team win by using his tactical genius. Only Clark caught on that Lex was behind it, as only Clark really saw Lex. Others just dismissed him or were filled with unease by him. However, after Clark asked Lex to never do that again, Smallville went undefeated for the rest of the season. But Clark only got glimpses of Lex's home life, yet it seemed miserable. His parents basically used Lex as a way to make themselves rich and never treated him with any love or human compassion. And Lex remained moody as a result, much like the night he created a, de a device that detected extraterrestrial material. A device that, well, went off when Clark was near, of course. Not realizing that the device was working perfectly well, Lex went off in a fit of fury. But Clark remained determined to be Lex's friend, and one night, he brought his telescope to Lex's lab, where Lex made a huge revelation. The reason Lex moved his dad to Smallville was that years earlier, Lex had made a discovery there that proved they were not alone in the universe. Lex reveals that it was a chunk of green ore, and, when, and then shows it to Clark, which immediately makes Clark nauseous and weak. Mistaking the look of, on Clark's face for fear, he throws Clark out of the lab violently, and Clark remains outside banging on the doors, begging Lex to let him back in. But Lex continues his experiment, ignoring Clark, and uses the ore to open the similar rift that we saw at the end of last issue. But the energy breaches the protective field and causes a massive explosion, massive green explosion, which throws Clark back several feet and burns Lex's hair off. Lex, still standing, pushes through his pain and gets the meteorite back, and then he sees his father burning alive, screaming for help. Clark can hear all of this, but his strength is still sapped by the kryptonite exposure, and he can do nothing for it. And by the time the fire department gets there, the house and Lex's father are all burned to the ground. And Lex angri angrily reacts that they could have saved all of it if they weren't a bunch of hillbilly yokels. Back in the present, Clark still blames himself and hopes that Lex doesn't see through his disguise. Pa points out that Lex's ego wouldn't let him believe that anything but himself would be the only good that would come from Smallville. Returning to Metropolis and his mild-mannered alter egoa in the offices of the Daily Planet, which are abuzz with huge news, Clark is stunned to see a photo on the front page of the website showing an armada of spaceships all bearing the familiar yellow S shield. And the headline reads, Earth Under Attack, and says that Superman is the vanguard of an alien invasion. And that is Birthright Issue 8 and the beginning of my notes. We jump in with this gorgeous shot of Smallville from a high point, and it looks great. It's not quite Tim's sale Americana, but still really nice and appealing to the eyes. And Lex owns this issue. He totally owns it. As I said, and I stand by, I don't need to identify with Lex. I don't know that this is a needed, a necessary part of the overall story, but truthfully, after it's all said and done, I'm kind of glad we got it because it was a really compelling read. Lex totally gets our undivided attention on pages 2 and 3 when he uses deductive reasoning to shatter the entire class, including poor Jacob Stewart, who thought it was a good idea to key the muscle-bound quarterback's car and will probably be horrifically assaulted later. But the reaction is to the teacher's dry reading of Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes, and Lex holds a lot of the characteristics of that very character. Between cases, Holmes would be bored, moody, uh, without a challenge he grew snide and called people out. Take Dr. House from the show House. Uh, Dr. House was modeled directly off of Holmes. Whenever he had a case that wasn't a challenge, for example, working at the clinic, 
he would tear people down just to make it interesting. This book was complete before House even debuted, so it's totally plausible that Wade turned to Sherlock Holmes to inform his depiction of the young Lex Luthor, and it totally, totally works. But when you see somebody who is on a completely other level, I mean, so much so that they can spot and call out a teacher for wearing a man's shirt as a blouse, and having been with the coach the night before, it makes you uneasy. The funniest thing about Lex's skills of observation is that he never clues into the biggest secret, even when it is literally right in front of his face, which is Clark being the very alien life he's searching for. I mean, like, the actual person. (laughs) Um, I don't even know if I chalk it up to ego. I think Lex is looking for a challenging answer to a challenging question, and the fact that it is simply Clark is just too boring. Lex can't see the forest for the trees, and Jonathan has the modern Lex's number down in terms of ego, but the young Lex isn't as refined, nor has he had enough real-world experience to really attempt to look under his nose for the alien life. This version of the young Superman and Lex's rivalry really is far and away more traumatic than the Silver Age version, and in the older version, I mean, there was a lab fire, Lex lost his hair, but there wasn't anybody with their skin being seared off. This part of the book was a hard read, and I know, I know it was meant to be. But I found myself squirming just, it's so over the top. I I get it. I see why we have this, because it shows the event that completely turned Luthor against the world and made him see life as expendable. But uh, it's still, it's harsh. It's very harsh for a Superman story. This rendition of Lex Luthor's time in Smallville makes the Silver Age Lex look like a harmless puppy in comparison. It's much more substantial motivation in comparison to the vanity of losing his hair, and we get the backbone that his father set Lex up as a money-making machine. Logistically, everything about this makes sense, so I'll place my discomfort purely in the zone of personal preference. As for the odds and ends of this issue, page 2 has a Smallville High student wearing a shirt for the band Pavement. Why is this relevant? This goes further for establishing our timeline, because Pavement was a contemporary of Nirvana and toured with them in 1993. If Clark is about 15 at this point, and we're placing the rocket crash around 1978, which would also be the year that Superman the movie came out, how synchronous, then it fits perfectly. And I love it when a plan comes together. On page 4, as Lex is discovering civics, he is using references like the Jefferson Bible, a book of FDR speeches, Plato's philosophy, and a book of uh, John Adams' uh, politics. All of these books exist. They're actually really insightful, and it's impressive that Wade threw these in because it helps me buy that Lex could find a way that would be a a substantial government. And let's be honest, Lana only serves one purpose in this book. Notice I have not mentioned her in the synopsis or anywhere. One purpose, it's to make a random appearance on page 3 and to snub Clark on page 6. That's it. And to jump in her cheerleader outfit. Okay, I can't hold that much against her. Um, One off note uh, here on page 9. Lex's dad does look a little bit like John Glover from Smallville. And then I get a bit of a chuckle on page 13. When Lex tells Clark that if he were a reporter, he would be getting a Pulitzer. Once again, Lex informs Clark's future. And as Lex fires up his wormhole generator on page 17, all the power in the immediate area goes out. I hear a song in my head, and I'm sorry, but I hear it. That's the night the lights went out in Smallville. Whoa. Okay, okay, I'm no Reba McIntyre or Vicki Lawrence, so I'm just going to leave that there. And hopefully it's in your head. <laughs> Evil is fun. And then finally on page 22, I call shenanigans. I call big shenanigans. I'm sorry, I have to call it out. Because even though Clark was in Smallville for a couple of days, the Kent farm clearly had internet. We saw them using it. And they were looking at the Daily Planet. How would Clark miss an armed armada with his symbol? Or how would even Martha miss that? I can't let that one slide by completely without pointing it out. It doesn't ruin the experience. It doesn't ruin the book. In fact, you want that big reveal. But, it, it you know, it, it does stand out to me where I do scratch my head a little bit. But, you know, we are... <laughs> we had a traumatic issue here. And you know what? It gets a lot worse. So I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to play a promo for a podcast that you should probably check out. Uh, Probably Sean Ingle's podcast, if I have have any inkling of that at this moment. And then when we come back, 
Birthright number 9, and Superman the Animated Series Brave New World, which has me really, really excited. So I'll be right back after this podcast promo. Hey everyone, Sean Engel here. And Strange Disembodied Voice here. Hey, it's good to hear from you. It's been a long time. How have you been? What have you been up to? Oh, not much. Working with other broadcasters, palling around with Simon Cowell, prepping for the Mayan apocalypse. You know, the usual. Neat. Anyhow, uh, glad we got back together since the show, Just One of the Guys, is coming to a turning point, and since you were there at the beginning, I thought it'd be appropriate that you be here now. Ooh, are you finally changing formats and doing your epic coverage of the Al Milgram Opus US-1? Um, no, I'm gonna start coverage of the Kyle Rayner stories in Green Lantern. And that supposedly is more impressive than the trucker who can receive CV signals through a metal plate in his head? Undoubtedly. Plus, I'm still gonna be covering the ongoing saga of Guy Gardner. Ooh, will he be getting a metal plate in his head which allows him to receive CV signals? No, nothing quite that ridiculous. Although the stories will involve him getting alien DNA, becoming a living weapon, and punching Nazi dinosaurs. Seriously? Yep. So all of this, yet the epic tale of a trucker who's vying to avenge his death of his brother caused by a man who sold his soul to the devil for a satanic 18th healer is just too goofy? Precisely. <sighs> Whatever. So where can I find out about all these changes? Lots of places. For one, you can go to www.justoneoftheguys.lipson.com to download the shows, check out the covers of the books, and leave comments on individual show postings. You can also find the show on iTunes just by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, and you can leave a review there as well. So after you finish these books up, you'll cover US-1? Maybe. I've still got that Dallas Dynasty show with J. David Weider to do. And Scott Gardner has approached me about doing an NFL Super Bro podcast that he wanted to do in conjunction with the 25th anniversary of its release. It's come check it out every Friday at justoneoftheguys.libson.com. And we're back for the next installment of Birthright, which is, of course, Birthright number nine. Um, we are picking her up right on the heels of that revelation we just saw, number eight, and we're going to lead to a much bigger cliffhanger. I'm just going to warn you ahead of time. So jumping into the synopsis, Lois Lane has been looking for Superman, but every time she comes to a super rescue, he is long gone. But when Lois finds herself on a boat, no, no, I'm not going to play that song. I know you want me to, and I know I want to, but I'm not going to play it. However, I do have a nautical-themed Afghan. Uh, but, to rephrase, Lois is on a yacht, out in the water, in the clutches of drug-dealing members of the powerful Giacomo family. And Superman arrives just in time to save Bo uh, Lois from a hail of bullets. The little person in charge offers Superman an alliance, seeing as which the aliens will need a network when they do complete their invasion of Earth. So he gets the head of the Giacomo family on the phone. But Superman's wordless response is dropping the entire yacht into the criminal swimming pool. And after dropping off the yacht, by the way, there was nobody in the yacht. I should probably point that out. That's probably a relevant bit of information that I didn't put in my synopsis notes here. But after that, Superman takes Lois back to the roof of the Daily Planet, where she asks him point blank why he cannot prove that Luthor's claim of a Kryptonian invasion is fake. Superman kind of plays coy, I and mean, he does admit to being an alien, but he simply says, you know, I'm trying. I'm trying to prove all of this stuff wrong. Um, so, in the office of the Daily Planet, Lois and Jimmy try to debunk Luthor's photo, but they really can't. Um, not so far. But, Clark is emailing his mom, and wondering if he was maybe meant to be the advance guard of an invading army. Martha assures Clark that he is not capable of such an act. And needing answers, Clark changes to Superman and flies off to find the man who has them, Lex Luthor, who is holed up in one of his secure labs, guarded by tanks and troops. Superman bypasses all of that by simply tunneling underneath the ground and coming up right in Lex Luthor's lab itself, sealing only the two men inside. So it's Superman and Luthor together. Superman demands to know what Luthor is up to, and Lex reveals Project Krypton which Superman doesn't recognize. He doesn't know the name, which perks Lex up, and Luthor takes a lot of glee in telling Superman the horrible, horrible news. Krypton exploded. So all of the family or potential friends, all of that is gone. And Lex knows this because the Phantom Zone portals, that wormhole that he opened, uh, shows him other galaxies. Now it's at different time periods, and he hasn't fine-tuned it to be able to 
choose that find that time period. But this is how Lex got the images of Krypton to begin with. So the images are, well, real images. They're just not from here and now because Krypton went boom. Uh, so Lex uses his sort of uh, virtual reality to display the images around them, and they resemble what Clark has seen in his tablet, but from other eras. And Luthor explains that, basically, he is trying to discredit Superman, and here's why. The Man of Steel is the very thing that Lex has spent years and years searching for. And what happened when he finally found it? Lex found himself dismissed and rejected. Oh, by the way, the installation Superman just smashed his way into... Uh, if he wants to go ahead and destroy that, that's great, but there's kryptonite stashed everywhere. Uh, kryptonite is a name that Luthor gives it. And also, the installation is now property of the U.S. government, which makes things look a lot worse. <laughs> and if that little defeat wasn't enough, just learning his history is uh, based on a, a planet that's no longer around, well, Superman leaves the base and returns to life as Clark Kent, as the newspapers are blasting him for invading that installation, but... Clark doesn't get his hands on the paper because, well, there's this gigantic red creature walking through the city bearing the S symbol. The Kryptonians have invaded and that is where and how the issue wraps up. That's right. That's where we're going to leave the story for this week. Now, for those of you who have, who have not read this, and I'm looking at you, Mr. Engel, that's one hardcore cliffhanger. So, but as far as the plot for this issue goes, I have a few thoughts. Uh, the first of which is that even though public perception of Superman is at a low, he's still out there. He's still fighting the good fight. He may be keeping his head down a bit when doing so, but once again, he doesn't give up. The battle is never-ending, after all. But the bulk of my thoughts and my greatest focus is this dynamic that's forming here with the Lex Lois Superman. And I, I want to be clear on what I mean by this dynamic. Um... Because we're dealing with a triangle, but it's there's actually a lack of Clark, Superman, Lois dynamic. I could use more of that triangle, but that's been missing for way, way too long at this point. Because for years and years, Lois has been put back into the role of simple damsel in distress, and really the romance angle has been diminished. I don't know why, and I think my thoughts on Lois Lane were made fairly clear across two episodes, so I'm not going to rehash that, but this is a very big gap for me. It's a big, big loss. And especially, I feel the loss a little bit more because Lois is written so well as a character. But there's no spark. Now I point this out because it's going to become a recurring theme for several of the books I'll be covering in the upcoming months. So just earmark that. Now to the point I'm actually trying to make after that little stop off in Gripeville. Lois smells crap. She smells it, and Lex is the one that's emitting the smell. Uh, so she's out to expose that. And we're looking at a conflict around Superman, but the conflict is really between Lex and Lois. Because they're forming this, the yin and yang revolving around Superman. They're the two sides of the coin. And for all the setup and comparisons that Lex and Clark had as opposites, yet similar, no, Lois. Lois is actually trying to seek out the good in Superman. Lex is trying to soothe his bruised ego. Lo Lois sees the human side, Lex only sees the alien. It's a battle that Superman really can't fight, but Lois can because, well, it's all about meeting Lex with facts versus fiction. It's an odd, odd triangle. It's not the one I expected at all, and to be honest with you, I didn't notice it on my first read-through. But this isn't Lex building some wacky contraption and menacing Superman where the Man of Steel can solve it with his fists or outsmarting Lex. Um, it's so perfectly conveyed, uh, yet it's, it, it's not something where it jumped right out at me. Uh, for example, the art. The art is where it's perfectly conveyed here. Um, when Superman is talking to Lois, it's a sunlit day, he's well lit, and when Superman faces down Lex in the lab towards the end of the issue, Superman is in shadows, and his eyes are glowing green, which I could do without, but yet here, here it makes sense, because Luthor is seeing the alien, Lois is seeing the man. It's so fine-tuned I can hear choirs of angels singing. You know, they're, they're, they're changing their tune to get to the, the pitch that we're dealing with on this. Um, but that's the main brunt of my thought on this issue. That's what I took away from it. Uh, but, of course, I still have a few odds and ends before we wrap up. Well, the cover is... Okay, the cover is meh. You know, it's alright. It shows Superman in full costume standing among Kryptonians. It's not that intriguing, and the colors make it really, really bland. 
but as we go further into these last issues, that kind of becomes a standing complaint. Where we had some epic covers up front, now we're getting some, eh, some okay covers here and there. Um, jumping to page two, the little person who was holding guns to Lois, I had to do a double take, because I thought it was the Batman villain Scarface for a moment. And despite my fear of ventriloquist dolls, yes, that's a legitimate fear for me, I dig Scarface, but alas, he, this guy is just a little enforcer. And shots don't come more iconic than Superman blocking the bullets on page 3, and I really, really wish this had been used as the cover, because that would have had me hook, line, and sinker. Uh, page 5, we get a depiction of Superman in the shadow with the glowing red eyes. Now this is when he is facing down the little person on the boat. It makes him look menacing, which I would hate, and I'm not a big fan of the glowing red eyes. But, like the confrontation with Luthor, we're seeing a little bit of a POV interpretation with the little person seeing the Man of Steel as the advance of an invading army. Okay, I see what you did there. I appreciate that. It makes sense, but the subtlety almost escaped me. Um, I was on my third pass on the book. And I don't know if I should put that on the book that I missed it, or on myself. Uh, fair is fair. I can't stop staring at the Metropolis backdrop on page 7. I'm sorry, but there's just something about a sun-drenched Metropolis with great architecture and no smog. And it seems like up on the rooftops here, those gas mask salesmen seem worlds away. This reminds me very much of a a wallpaper, a screensaver that, used, that DC used to put out that was done by Jim Lee. It was an um, animated wallpaper that was Metropolis, so the little... It was actually really cool. There was a billboard in the middle of, of the Times Square, and... The sun would rise and set, and the billboard would show different DC news, but it was constantly moving, constantly evolving. I really miss that backdrop. Oh, and uh, Martha emails Clark. They're having this chat discussion. She uses the domain Kent.com. Now, being, being a nerd, I decided to see if that domain did hold something, if DC owned it, what have you. Uh, that domain is not available in the United States. So, there you go. Um, now, of course, we're talking fiction, and that was probably done so they didn't accidentally stumble on somebody else's real email, but her screen name is Area 52, by the way, and Clark's is mild-mannered, all one word. It's just adorable. It's a nice little touch. I dig that. Uh, on pages 10 and 11, we see Clark referring to Jimmy as Jim, which has a pretty solid effect on our boy Olsen. For once, Jimmy feels like somebody sees him as an equal or as a, as a, a real part of the staff. And of course, Lois isn't going to let Jimmy's head get too big, so she keeps the Jimmy name in play. Way to go, Lois. <laughs> uh, and then I skip all the way to the last page with the giant attacking monster. Um, it's very crab-like, um, very crustacean-like. Um, I immediately thought of a cross between John Carter and War of the Worlds. Which is a bit cliche, and I know that comes off as a little obvious if you're looking at the book. But I think it's meant to. Because if you're going to have invading aliens, well, go to the original inspiration, War of the Worlds. And then John Carter is an inverse of Superman, so it's actually hitting uh, the right sci-fi spots, to be honest with you. And that leaves us with that extreme cliffhanger and the big question for the week. If Lex's claims of an invasion are a hoax, Krypton is long gone, well, just who is invading Earth? And what can Superman do against an entire army of Kryptonians? Tune in next week to find out. And now, it's time for another episode of Superman the Animated Series, and admittedly, a pretty awesome episode as well. This time around, I'm going to do something a little different um, and see how it works. I'm going to test it out. Typically, I've been writing my own synopses for these episodes and using the DC Animated Wiki and Superman homepage to verify error dates and episode order and things like that. Now, the Wiki has a full synopsis for each episode, and they have been consistently on point, enough that they've actually got my confidence. So it occurred to me that I could be working smarter and not harder if I use the synopses from the wiki, after I verify it, of course. After I read through it, make sure it's accurate, watch the episode, etc. And then my time can be better served breaking the episode down and making my notes. This would literally cut my work time in half. I'm not exaggerating on that. Literally in half. 
So the episode is Brave New Metropolis, which is a title inspired by Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. It was written by Stan Berkowitz and directed by Kurt Gaeta. It aired on September 27th, 1997, and is the 25th episode, 25th episode overall, and the 12th for the season. And the synopsis from the DC Animated Wiki goes, At Star Labs, Jimmy and Lois are being shown a machine built by Professor Hamilton that is based on the Phantom Zone projector. It's supposed to provide a window into another dimension, but it doesn't seem to work. However, when Lois looks between the machine's two posts, which look like Tesla coils, I will add, she notices that the glass between them looks cracked while anything around the post is whole. As she looks over it, however, she gets too close and is pulled into an alternate dimension. Lois ends up in a decrepit and destroyed Star Labs and heads off to Metropolis. The streets seem to be deserted, however, and Lois discovers a large statue of Superman and Luthor's heads, declaring them the men who saved Metropolis. Lois is then confronted by Turpin, who demands to see her curfew card. When he finds she doesn't have one, he attempts to arrest her, but a group of shaggy men break into a building and start firing on them. Amongst these is Jimmy, who runs into Lois. Before he can say anything, however, Superman arrives and violently stops the gang. Jimmy drags Lois away before they're noticed. Jimmy leads Lois away and explains to her that, well, she's supposed to be dead. While Lois was working on an intergang piece, they attempted to kill her with a car bomb. However, Lois remembers that Superman saved her. Jimmy, however, claims that Superman was actually too late to save her and then became a brutal and then became brutal, sorry, and turned to the city into a police state after. The duo arrives in a building filled with more downtrodden people, and Jimmy reveals his mission was to steal a rock of kryptonite. Unfortunately, a group of soldiers led by Mercy arrives and take the people into custody. Lois is taken to Luthor, who expresses some surprise at her being alive, yet he finds he can't deny it. Deciding that she's too dangerous to be kept around, he tells Mercy to kill her. Unfortunate, or port me, fortunately... <laughs> Get my unfortunate and unfortunates. Okay. Uh, if it's unfortunate or fortunate, I don't know. But Mercy and Lois run into Angela Chen, newscaster, who distracts Mercy long enough to allow Lois to take Mercy's gun and escape. Lois runs through the city and climbs up a large Superman Luthor monument and fights off a group of police helicopters in spite of this victory. She is injured and Superman soon arrives. However, when he sees his target is Lois, his demeanor instantly changes. He saves her from falling when she faints and takes her somewhere safe. And all of this is witnessed by Mercy, who reports to Luthor. Elsewhere, Lois explains about her origins, and Superman explains that his Lois' death shocked him into realizing that his heroics were futile. He decided that he needed to take control to stop all crime. Lois wonders why he would go so crazy over her, and Superman admits that he was in love with her. Lois is angered not only that his hiding her about at his hiding her feelings for ah typo. Lois is angered not only at his hiding his feelings for her, but for her for joining up with Luthor as well. Superman claims that Luthor is in check, but when he learns of Luthor's true actions, he becomes enraged and confronts his partner. Faced with certain death, Luthor starts his fast talking and then reveals he now has the chunk of kryptonite Jimmy had stolen. Lois tries to save Superman, but Mercy stops her, and as the two women fight, Luthor tells Superman that he'll smooth talk the people of Metropolis and become their savior. Just as he says this, the rebels arrive and reveal they know Luthor's true intent. Luthor runs and Mercy tries to follow but is tripped and the crowd advances on her. Luthor manages to escape in a flying vehicle but Superman goes after him. All of Luthor's attempts to shake his enemy off the vehicle come to naught. But when Superman gets too close to catching him, Luthor uses his kryptonite to force him away. Unfortunately for Luthor, Superman damages the vehicle enough to cause it to go out of control. Luthor is unable to eject and crashes into the side of the monument, bearing his own face, killing him and marring the statue in his likeness. With Luthor gone, Superman in, ch in check. Once again, he and Lois go to Star Labs and discuss the rebuilding of Metropolis. However, a portal opens and our world Superman comes through, calling Lois back home. The alternate Superman swears that even though he's lo losing Lois again, it won't change things for the city. Lois kisses the alternate Superman and then returns home. And back at home, she decides to never let her own Metropolis suffer the same fate as the alternate one and invites Superman to dinner. Closing credits. <laughs> uh, jumping into the notes for this episode, because I know we're running uh, right at the cusp of, of, of our end time here. 
Um, right out of the gate, I have to ask, Professor, Ham- Professor Hamilton, haven't we learned that experimenting with Kryptonian technology never leads anywhere good? Um, and how do you build something when you don't know what it does? I know we have semantics, schematics, but uh, there's key components in there. There's got to be at least some sort of indicator. Um, and, wow, I really noticed the Lois model in this time, and it kind of got annoying. She's always wearing the same purple dress and ballerina skirt. I mean, I guess we can live with it, but it was very much a, a standout in this episode. Uh, but the statue of Superman and Luthor, as well as the altered red and black symbol based on the Nazi SS symbol, totally draw you in, and they set the dark tone right out of the gate once we get to the alternate dimension. And, well, I guess so does mullet, Jimmy. Yes, that's definitely a mullet. Why do we show alternate realities and dystopian futures by giving characters stubble and long hair? Or usually a scar as well. It's not relegated to just this show by any stretch. It's kind of a sci-fi staple, so if I let my facial hair grow and I gain shaggy long hair, I can be like a alternate universe rebel Dave? Okay, that, that could be kind of fun. Uh, the weird thing is, this is probably the most Jimmy Olsen has appeared in a single episode so far. Outside of, you know, background scenes at the Daily Planet, Jimmy's been pretty much worthless. And, well, then you have him getting kidnapped here and there. We've got that, but I don't know if that counts. And, of course, when Jimmy revealed the kryptonite, I heard the spin doctors all over again. I'm not going to play the song. You're welcome. You won't get it stuck in your head all day. There is also a laugh-out-loud moment when Luthor verifies Lois more from her spunky attitude than a DNA scan. I really do dig that a lot. Also, using Angela Chen... Uh, that was a solid move, and something that this show shares with its sister show is a robust cast of background characters. Uh, kind of exclusive strictly to the show. I mean, sometimes they do find their way into comic book continuity, but generally, generally it's, it's, pretty simp- it's pretty straightforward and sticks to the show. And while I'm in the neighborhood of the robust, the score for this episode stood out in moments. Um, it had a feel that leaned a little bit more to Batman the Animated Series than Superman, but... It's, it's appropriate here. It's some nice choir work in there. It gives the looming feeling of darkness. But how did it seem like a good idea to climb on top of the monument when running from helicopters? Um, I'm going to follow my logic here. Helicopters are in the air, and getting higher makes you closer to them, makes them easier. It makes it easier for them to find you. Just remember that if you're ever chased by copters in an alternate dimension. Uh, but the change of demeanor in Superman is perfect when he sees Lois because he goes from this frightening figure to, oh, familiar. We know this guy. We've been sharing adventures with, with this guy for a while now. But the standout of the episode is the black uniform. For me, I mean, it's what drew me to watch this episode when I saw it on the on, online. Um, not only do I like the use of red on black, I'm a big fan of that colors, but it immediately feels dark. Um, as soon as Superman arrives in the first scene, the viewer is just taken back. Uh, this look really makes a huge distinction between our Superman and other evil versions. Because, well, I mean, just to be honest, he looks like a Nazi. I, I mean, I hate to put too fine a point on it, but that's what it is. Nazis are scary, and to see Superman dressed as one, absolutely scary. Even characters like Ultraman, you know, in alternate dimensions, they didn't elicit this much discomfort for me. I mean, really, if I have a complaint, because I love this episode so much, it's that the episode could have been a two-parter. I mean, I wish we'd seen more of this world. Um, it could have supported it. We, I mean, we have this total- totalitarian Superman, uh, Resistance, a scheming Luthor. You have enough there to work with and easily make two episodes. It could have been a pretty epic two-parter. But overall, I mean, these episodes run, I mean, without commercials, about 20 minutes. And this one was about 20 minutes and 30 seconds to end credit. Um, one minute, so I mean, if you're taking one minute for the opening credits, you get about 19 minutes and 30 seconds. That would have run a little over 40, 40 minutes, 41 minutes. You know, could have been good. However, in the time that we did get, we got a memorable glimpse into what could have been, and it's an episode that stays with you. Especially scenes like Lois returning to our world and Superman taking a glimpse back as the our Superman, as the dictator Superman watches with his hair blowing. Nothing is said, and nothing is really made of it, uh, but it's poignant. It's very poignant if you're watching it from a critical standpoint. Both Superman's kind of briefly seeing what could be, and maybe taking different paths because of it. You know, our Superman's seeing a dictator Superman and saying, I need to not become that. 
and Dictator Superman seeing the potential he could have become. It's just a powerful episode and one a, a viewer can really munch on and think about for a long time and think about the ramifications of this world. Um, I mean, things like where are the other heroes? What happened to Ma and Pa Kent? Exactly what did Luthor say to, to sway Superman to the dark side? Uh, I really wish this was revisited or played with, but I'll ta- happily take what I am given with this one. An incredibly progressive episode of a cartoon series really thought out. But I'm looking at the clock. We are out of time this week. Uh, next time, the conclusion of Birthright as the invasion begins, Superman finds himself in for the fight of his life. And another episode of Superman the Animated Series, all for the low, low price of free. So I will see you in seven days. Until then, keep on fighting the never-ending battle. Superman Forever Radio is a NatWorld production. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, where you can leave a review. The show's episodes and extended show notes are available at supermanforever.com, where episodes premiere every Sunday. Episode postings can also be found at the supermanhomepage.com and at supermanpodcastnetwork.com, where you can find a wide variety of quality Superman podcasts for your listening pleasure. And episodes are also available on Stitcher Radio. Email is always welcome. The address is mail at supermanforever.com. You can friend and follow the show at facebook.com slash supermanforeverradio. And David is also on Twitter with the handle at superdaveweeder. Weeder is spelled W-E-T-E-R. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties of DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman and all related characters are copyrighted properties of DC Comics and Warner Brothers Entertainment. All music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only and copyrights remain with the copyright holder. No infringement is intended. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. As always, thank you so much for listening.